Father, thank you so much for, um, I guess first and foremost, I'd say for your word. Um, that though it can be confusing and though it can be um, difficult to process through and sometimes there's like weird questions that we have about it, that it speaks truth. It speaks truth that transforms us. It speaks truth that shows us of who you are, of how you love us, and of how you've been pursuing us. Um, help us to process through all the difficulties of it, to hear your voice, um, to see you clearly in the midst of it. Um, lead this class, lead this time, uh, help us to be students of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. So thanks for registering. I'm pumped that you guys are here. This is like my favorite thing to talk about ever. And so if I talk really fast or nerd out way too hard, you just need to let me know. Um, but it is my favorite thing to talk about, and I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because I think in my experience of doing ministry, most of us struggle to know what to do with our Bible. Um, at least at some level. Like, we know we're in this class, and we know that we should read our Bibles. Like, that's, that is the, uh, a thing that we all believe or have some kind of belief, and we're like, okay, so we're supposed to read it. We're supposed to be engaging with it. We're supposed to be learning things from it. Maybe I'm supposed to memorize Scripture. Maybe I'm supposed to get some cool coffee mugs with Scripture verses on them. Like, I'm supposed to do something with my Bible. What is it? But then as you read it, you're like, how do I deal with it? How do I look at it? How do I understand it as a whole? There's 66 books. Are they connected? Are they together? Some of them feel really weird. Some of the stories feel really weird. Like one moment you have a talking animal, and next moment you have a vision of something that looks like somebody was on a drug trip. And you're like, how are these things unified? Like what are they saying to me? And how do I like process through that information? And so I think that one of the things that we commonly do to handle that um, is historically, and maybe this is like a uniquely American thing, I don't know, but we have taken the Bible and we have turned it into an anthology of moral stories. Um, and so we're going to look at it. We're going to like, okay, so here's a story about Adam and Eve. And that is, at its heart, a moral story about um, what you do in this situation and what you don't do in this situation. Or is, it is, at its heart, a moral story about marriage. And so I'm going I'm to use this as a story about how I understand marriage. Or so it's, at its heart, a moral story about snakes. And so I'm going to use it as, a, as, a, as an anthology to understand these difficult situations. But if that is the rubric by which you apply to all moments of Scripture, then you're left with these huge questions. Like, how do I understand Torah, the law, if I'm using it, my, my framework of moral anthology to understand it, because there's moments where it's saying, like, I shouldn't wear more than one fabric clothing item. But if that's a moral imperative for me, then I'm breaking it now. Like, literally at this moment, I think this is polyester and cotton. Like, I'm in sin. Or what do I do with moments that feel like barbaric or uh, like they violate my conscience when I, when I think about war? Like, are these moral anthologies that I should take with me? Um, and so you can just have these kind of like weird ideas that don't measure up. And so either we have to reject certain things or ignore certain things or just be like, I'll just come to it later. Um, and we don't know what to do with our Bible. So there's whole chunks of it that we don't know how to read. The second thing, though, I think that makes this so important is, in my experience, the majority of questions um, that I get asked from non-Christians are at their heart story questions. Um, I think maybe like 10 years ago, if you were in the church, like apologetics was a really big deal. 
um, which was like learning how to give really clever defenses to your faith, right? And I think that's great. I, I totally do. I have I've taken many classes in apologetics, but it was always like I'm going to answer the problem of evil, or I'm going to like people are going to ask me, they're like, how can a good God do these things, or or how can I believe in a God at all with all of the science? And then you're going to answer those questions. I think today, though, the majority of questions that non-Christians are asking are story questions. And, and by that I mean like they're asking questions that we're asking about the Bible, like um, how can I believe in a God who it seems um, upholds certain tenets of misogyny in the Old Testament? Or how do I uh, believe in a God who, who seems to hold certain things about war in Scripture? Or how do I believe in the Genesis narratives? Or how, how do I believe in a God of these Genesis narratives when it feels so contradictory to what I believe about the world or the universe or the, the origins of things? Um, so at the heart, it seems like most of the questions that we're asking are story questions, even questions about hell or questions about injustice, to me, all come down to they're story questions. And they have, they have context in the story of Scripture, and they make sense in the story of Scripture, and they become actually, think, really beautiful or uh, at least nuanced in the story of Scripture. But when they're removed from that, they feel weird, they feel um, unhelpful. Uh, and so I think, yeah, all, a lot of the questions we're asking are story questions. And so... To answer those, we're going to trace through the movement of the Bible in um, six acts. This is what we're going to do it through. So, uh, Act one will be introduction, which is the creation story of Scripture, which I think is the thing that we get so wrong so often. And because it's the introduction to the story, if you get it wrong, you literally get everything wrong at some level. Um, and then in today, we'll also look at um, Act 2, which is the inciting incident, which is fall in Genesis chapter 3, and then what comes after those moments, which, um, again, I think are moments that we've read a lot and we read through really quickly. So you have, like, Cain and Abel, and you have um, Genesis 6, the flood, and you have Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and we're like, oh, yeah, these are stories that we've learned through felt board visuals in Sunday school classes, and so we know them. But I don't think we understand how vital they are to understanding the larger story of Scripture. Uh, and then next week we'll look at Act 3, which is um, the covenant that God makes with Abram in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through the story of the kings, which I think is actually one large movement of God's rescuing. Then in Act 4 we'll look at um, climax. Oh, I missed a colon. Dang it. Shoddy work. Um, <laughs> which is Jesus. Um, we'll look at after that. We'll look at the people of God, which is the church. And us, and then finally we'll close up by looking um, at the uh, end, which is Revelations, the kingdom of God, um, renewal of all things. Um, but we can't get to any of that until we look at first the creation. I think really creation sets all of this up really well. Uh, and then to do that, we're going to do it, we need to understand three big ideas about the Bible. Uh, and these will be ideas that we will come back to over and over and over again. They will guide us, they will guard us, they will keep us safe, um, and they will challenge the way that we think about the Bible over and over and over again. And here they are. Um, number one, that the Bible is both a human word and a divine word. The Bible is both a human word and a divine word. So this means first that the Bible has a human author, or I should say it has many human authors. And this human author has a unique personality perspective and historical and narrative location. They exist somewhere in history and they exist somewhere in the story of God, right? Like whoever's writing Genesis does not exist in the same time of whoever is writing Jesus' story. So you cannot expect them to sync up. You cannot expect them to be thinking about the same thing. Or um, 
you can't expect them to act like anything other than a human. They are a human, so they get to be that way. They have a personality, they have a voice, they have their own expectations, their own experiences, their own goals and agendas as they're writing the story. Um, they're writing it for a reason. And so as we read it, we have to respect the author and his or her intention in writing. Um, why were they writing it? What are the questions they're asking? Um, what are they thinking about as they write it? I think one of the biggest problems that we'll face over and over and over again is like when we read Genesis, we want whoever's writing Genesis to behave like a 21st century scientist. But that's not respecting the author of Genesis, who is not a 21st century scientist. Right? And so you can't expect them to answer the questions that we have or answer the questions of 21st century science. Like that's not a fair thing to do to that person because they don't exist then. They don't even know what a telescope is, let alone a microscope, let alone who Darwin is. All they know is the world around them. So you have to respect that intention. And this also means that, since it's a human word, we have to use the resources that we have um, to figure out what it is that person is saying. And it's totally acceptable that we use all the resources, all the intellectual might that we have to figure out what it is that that person is saying, which will require us to grow, to understand things, and to change, which should not be frightening, it should be motivating. Um, that we can be wrong about what the human author is saying. Because we're learning more. We learn more about the Hebrew language every year. We learn more about the Greek language every single year. And so it's not weird to say, I don't know, or I learned something new about this. That doesn't change the, it doesn't change the authority of the Bible. It doesn't lose that. Um, but as a human author, we have to begin to dive into that. But the Bible is also a divine word, which means that as we are working to understand the human author, the real goal is to hear what it is that God is saying who is working through human authors. And it is this voice that we care about the most. Um, and the divine voice speaks to who we are, why we're here, and how he loves. And this is the voice we're trying to listen to, respect, and submit to at the end of the day. So that's the ultimate authority through it, but it takes work, and it takes um, patience, and it takes um, yeah, intentionality. Um, number two, the Bible is a unified story about God and his mission to bring his kingdom. Um, so this is maybe the thesis about, like, here's the plot of God's story. Um, that God is, this is his story at the heart of the day, that it, we are not the chief characters in the story, that David or whoever else you're looking at is not the chief characters of the story, that God is the chief character. He's the only one who is there from page one to page end, from Genesis to Revelation. Any other book, you'd know that dude's the hero. Harry Potter is obviously the hero of Harry Potter. His name is on the cover. God is obviously the hero of the Bible, not us. And so that actually changes the way we think about it. This is his story. It's about him. It's revealing things about him and his mission to bring his kingdom. Or you could say another way, the Bible is thoroughly Jesus-centered. And so that's the key that we're looking for. How does this thing speak to who Jesus is um, in some way or another? And then finally... Context is king. Um, context is king. So, like we said before, we have to respect the author and his or her context. And so, an easy way to help think about this is that the Bible is for us, but it was not written to us. So I know that maybe seems like really obvious when you hear it, but it really changes the way you think about the Bible. It is for you. Like God knew you, he thinks about you. Like Ephesians 1, he predestined you before the foundations of the world. But he is not writing this thing to you, right? How do you know that? Oh, because none of us speak Hebrew. And that's the original language that Genesis was written in. 
So you are not the original intended audience of Genesis. You have to respect the context that these works come in. And that means both historically and narratively. So Abram doesn't know about David. And we can't take David's theology and then insert them onto Abraham. There's a progression to the story. You can't just jump into the middle and expect to not be confused. I think we do that with the Bible all the time. People jump into the middle of it and you're like, I don't understand these things. I'm mad. The Bible doesn't make sense. And you're like, whoa, Holmes. Like you, like, like try that with any other book. Like try just any other book. Like jump in in the middle of Lord of the Rings and see if you think it makes sense. Like it won't. Lord of the Rings barely makes sense if you read it from the beginning. Like, and I've read it like four times. It's still confusing. You have to respect the context narratively and historically. Uh, the historical world is different than ours. It's not the 21st century one. So we can't take 21st century ideas and force them into the ancient world. It's like trying to fly to France today and talk about the jazz. There's going to be some disconnects, right? Like, one, you don't speak French. Two, they don't care about the jazz. So there's going to be a problem. But now just add 3,000 years of history to that and have the same conversation. It doesn't make any sense. So don't try to force modern ideas into the text. Um, yeah, context is king. So that makes sense? So those are the three. The Bible is both a human word and a divine word. The Bible is a unified story about God and his mission to bring his kingdom. So it's all about Jesus. And context is king. So every time we're trying to translate something, every time we're trying to work through something confusing, we have to understand that context is king. Cool? Any questions? Dope. All right. Let's um, start where all good stories start, right in the beginning. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1. Yay. All right. This is how Genesis chapter 1 begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 is so vital, I think, to understanding the larger story of God. It sets the stage, it introduces the characters, it gives us um, certain like foundational theological keys that if we miss, I think we miss so much of what's happening in a later story. But I think that we miss that really regularly because as we come to this story, we are so focused on whether or not the earth is young or old. Um, that is the primary debate that we have when we're reading the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative. And so like, we come into it and we're like, oh, okay, so this is what God is saying. He's saying, I did this at this time and it took this long and these are the days that I did it and this is what those days mean. These are years or epochs or ages or they're just days. And I don't think that's a bad conversation to have. I don't want to undermine that. I don't want to undermine people's history or past in that. But I think when we make Genesis 1 about that, we're actually violating our first and third truth, that the Bible is a human word and a divine word, and that context is king. We're trying to force our questions, our modern understanding of the text, our modern way of thinking, we're trying to force that into Genesis 1 and 2 and say, these stories or this author must answer the questions that I have about the Bible. So we're ignoring the original context, ignoring the original audience. Like, what does it say about evolution? What does it say about creation? But, like, Darwin wasn't born until 1809. When was Genesis written? Almost 3,000 years ago. They cannot be in dialogue with one another. Evolution and the creation narrative cannot be in dialogue with one another. They can't be having a conversation because one hasn't happened yet. I'll show you this, I just think, really practically. 
Um, in verse 1, the author of Genesis says, God created the heavens and the earth. So when you think of the earth, what is the first image that comes to mind? Tiny. Tiny? Just like a tiny thing? Okay, that's actually an important... It's a speck in space. Yeah, that's a super important piece. So it's a speck in space. What do the rest of you think? Is there an image that comes to mind? Image of earth. Image of space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. So you think of this. This is one of the famous images. You think of uh, maybe some of the images that you've seen from NASA of like the Earth in space. And then, and then you, you can add this context to it that it is a tiny speck in the larger galactic solar system. But our first image of the Earth came in like 1940. That's the first time we ever knew what a globe looked like. So what do people before that think? Black ground. Well, yeah. Yeah, if you sail too far in the ocean, you fall off. Right. So that's the only thing, the only thing that you can think of, really, when you're conceiving of the Earth, even though before 1940 they know that the world is round, they know that the sun is the center of the universe, they know these things, right? Like, it's not like until 1940 they're just totally inept at all things, but somehow build a, sun, a spaceship. No, but they just don't know this. They don't know this image. This is a radically recent conception. And so if you jump 3,000 years into the past, you cannot expect the ancient Hebrews, when they hear the phrase earth, to think this. What are they going to think? Exactly what Jessica said. What's down here? They're just going to think what I see, the place around me. Hebrew cosmology looks way more, like when they think of earth, they're just like, hey, this is me. This is the earth. Like, that's all they can conceive of. <laughs> then you have the second image in Genesis, which is um, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, so what do we think of when we think of heavens? Well, most likely we think of space. We think of the universe. We think of the solar system. But the first telescope wasn't invented until like the 1800s. So that can't be what the ancient Hebrews are thinking of. They can't be thinking of infinite galaxies or an ever-expanding universe. Instead, ancient Hebrew cosmology looks way more like this. They think of the heavens and they think of what's up there. Just what's up there? So Earth is what's down here. Heavens are what's up there. And you can see ancient pictures of Hebrew cosmology. They think, um, Genesis 1 actually has this phrase, the rakia, that God creates the rakia up above. And it says, every place where else it's transit, it's like a metal dome. So the Hebrews believe that there is this metal dome above the Earth. And in there is the sun, the, that's the moon, the moon, bird, that's a bird, birds, <laughs> stars, and then above this is a huge body of water, which is why the earth is blue, or the sky is blue. Because why else would the sky be blue if you're an ancient Hebrew? And the only way that you think of the universe is by the things that you see around you. And then they believe that literally the earth stands on foundations. Does that phrase sound familiar from the Bible, that you have set the earth on its foundations? They literally believe that the earth is like stacked on mountains, and this is their conception of the universe. That here is the land. Here is the sky, which is blue because of water. Everything else is inside of that dome. Down here, there's actually a huge dragon called Leviathan. Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's their conception of the universe. And so like, as soon as we take a modern understanding of science and like, blast into that question, no wonder we're confused. And no wonder we're having an argument that feels really circular. Because the Hebrews are like, whoa, hold up, homie. What are you talking about? The earth is like this. And we're like, no, no, no. When did God create everything? How many days? And they're like, I don't know, but it looks like this. 
<laughs> but like, like we're just we're 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 trying to force into the text something that cannot be there. Now, when did it happen? Right, that's the real question. That's always the question that's on people's minds. And in the Bible, it says what Genesis one. In the beginning. Oh, that's a very helpful phrase of when God did everything. <laughs> in the beginning, God created what's up there and what's down there. Well, when is in the beginning? Well, the Hebrew phrase is reshit, um, which is the least specific term probably in the Bible. Um, we use it in Genesis 1 as, uh, we always think about it as being like a point on a timeline. So this is in the beginning, God created, and then everything after that is after the beginning. But that's actually not a fair understanding of what in the beginning means. The rest of the time that you see this word reshit being used is actually used to describe the time in uh, Hebrews king's life where they are waiting. They have been made king of Israel, but they are waiting for their throne and their regency to be established with a coronation ceremony. So sometimes in, in Hebrew uh, or in ancient Israel, all coronation ceremonies happened in the month of Nisan, which is about March. And so say you were made king after March. Your predecessor died. What do you do? We have to wait until the month to be um, coronated the actual king of Israel. But it doesn't mean you're not ruling as king. But that whole period of time would be referred to as reshit, the reshit of your reign. So far more in the rest of the narrative this word in the beginning actually refers to a period of time way less than a moment in time. So that's actually kind of confusing. So now we have some time ago, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how Genesis 1 begins. Way, way back when, over an indefinite, undetermined period of time, God created what's up there, what's down here. So that's how the story of Genesis begins. And every time we read something more into that, we miss what's really going on, right? We miss what's really being intended. Uh, so way back then, God created what's up there, what's down here. That's what Genesis 1, verse 1 says. The author isn't specific because that's not what that person cares about. They're not trying to answer modern questions. This isn't a science book, which I hope we can understand. It's a story. And I'm not saying it's an untrue story. But it is a story that trying to communicate something different than how the universe very specifically and very scientifically came into being. Instead, the purpose of this story is to introduce us to God and tell us who he is and what he is doing in the world. That's the original goal. And what does it say so far? Well, in the beginning you have this character named God who does what? Who creates what's up there, what's down there? So we know that there's this character on the scene who is infinitely powerful, who is very capable, and who creates what's up there and what's down here. So we have this introduction of a really solid character. But then in verse 2, you get drama. Lost my spot. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you have God has created what's up there, what's down here, and then now there's a little bit of drama because what's down here has some kind of formlessness or voidness. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear that phrase. Um, have you seen the movie The Fifth Element? Has anybody seen that movie? Amazing. So, okay, yeah, it is a really great movie. Thanks. So that's what I think about. This is the, the villain of The Fifth Element. 
which is this like fiery, bally planet that's like coming towards Earth at a really rapid rate. So every time I hear this phrase in Genesis 1 verse 2, formless and void, this is what I picture. And I don't know what you picture. Maybe you are more scientific and you think of like the primordial soup that we're always being um, described in early evolutionary stages. Maybe you think of something different. If you're thinking something like this or primordial soup, then again, what have we done? Well, we've missed the context and we've read our own questions and intentions into the story because they can't think globe. <laughs> they can't think primordial soup. They can't think crazy chaos cosmos. They can't think any of those things. What are they going to think? Well, what is formless and void most likely in a Hebrew society? Well, most likely it's going to refer to something inhospitable. And actually the phrase tohu vavohu, which is formless and void, will later be used uh, to describe just that as Israel's entering into the wilderness in Exodus. The wilderness will be described as tohu vavohu, without form and void. It's a wilderness, which would be chaos if you're an ancient agrarian culture. Anything that is inhospitable, anything that's inhospitable to plants, to growing, to culture, that would be the drama of an ancient culture. Not some kind of crazy chaos ball, but wilderness, untamed wild. That would be what's crazy. And what does God do? Well, he enters it. He enters into the chaos. And he goes, and immediately in verse 1, or in verse 3, he begins to speak, let there be light, and there was light, and God said that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The next day, he's creating an expanse, the rakia. The next day, he's separating it, and on and on and on. God is entering into the wild waste and forming it into a home. So a place that we just learned was inhospitable, God is making hospitable. A place that we just learned was not great for human flourishing or for anybody's flourishing. All of a sudden, as you walk through six days of creation, you're like, oh, it's becoming more and more primed for life, more and more built for flourishing, more and more hospitable. Fills it with life, takes the inhospitable waste and makes it a home, a beautiful place for flourishing. So we miss that when we focus on how old the earth is or what is it earth. We always want this to be about how did God construct the place? I think we want it to be like, how did God build the home? And I think that's less the question. And it's more of a, a it's more of a, let's see, it's more of a homemaking story, less of a house building story. Does that make sense? So like one is construction project. The other one is what hap- how do you make a house a home? And I think that's really what Genesis 1 is about. How do you make a house a home? God takes this place and he makes it hospitable. He makes it hospitable. He makes it a home, something that is primed for life. He's not concerned with how in the author's mind, but about what. So the Genesis story is not in dialogue with modern science, but it is, I think this is important, it is in dialogue with ancient cosmology, ancient understandings of the universe. Right? That, is the, that is the group that it is in conversation with. And in the first part of Genesis, we learn certain truths that are going to speak to that ancient cosmology. First, that God is a good creator who wields immense power for the sake of life and flourishing. And then we learn that the world is a beautiful home created by a loving God, full of goodness. Now that's important because if you're an ancient Hebrew and you're like reading your Bible, you're, you're hearing this story told to you by your leaders, there's a whole other groups and cultures around you, especially as Israel's entering into Canaan, which is when we believe this story is probably being written down for the first time. So you're about to enter into Canaan. You're surrounded by all of these other cultures, all of these other um, understandings of the universe. And they believe, most of Canaanite and Babylonian culture believes, that the universe is the product of what's called theomachy, or God battle. 
And so like in the Babylonian mythology, the god Marduk battles Tiamat, and from her remains, he violently forges the earth. And so the earth is the, the product of death and violence and destruction. And so like if you're an ancient Hebrew and you're sitting down having coffee with your Babylonian neighbor, which happened all the time, <laughs> And you're like, hey, how do you believe the universe came into existence? They'd be like, oh, yeah, Marduk murdered Tiamat, and then he, he used her remains to form the earth. And you'd be like, oh, very interesting. I actually believe that this place is not the product of violence or chaos, but it is the product of a good God, a loving God, someone who has formed it with love and care. He's not out there trying to battle or his, deal with his rivals. He's not out there competing. no, no. He is a divine artist who has made this place hum as opposed to subdue chaos and make a home. Right? The God of the Bible has no rivals. He doesn't create through violence, but is a royal artist who created a work of art packed full of life and flourishing. So if we're learning anything about Genesis, that that's the conversation that it's having. That's the dialogue that it's having. Any questions? Thoughts? Outbursts? Shouts of emotion? <laughs> Fair enough. That's what my history teacher in high school always said. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so, okay. So once, once the world is primed for life, um, God fills it with inhabitants. So that's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Did you guess it right? Mm-hmm. Did you just guess it? Is that what you cheered yourself on? Yeah. Nice. Nailed it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And man um, is actually generic. And so it just means let us make humans in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, humans, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So once the world is primed for life, the home has been built, right? The homemaking story, it's ready. It's, it's totally ready. God fills it with the people who will live there. And we get a second, actually, a picture of this. I should stop closing this. <laughs> Yeah, that would be helpful. I have one, actually. Great. In uh, Genesis 2, verse 7, this is like the, the secondary image of this. Is the writer of Genesis decides to zoom in onto the story of humans' creation. He says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Nefesh Haim, a living being, a souled creature, is how sometimes you hear it described. Um, Actually, I, don't think, I was going to say sometimes you hear it described. I don't think you've probably ever heard it described that way because I've never heard it described that way. So just lied to you. Um, uh, so if you're looking at this from a modern lens, it's a bit confusing because it actually looks like you have two different stories of creation, which has been um, a criticism of young earth creationism for a long time, that um, you have Genesis 1, which is like everything's being created, and then Genesis 2, it looks like it's happening again or differently or distinctly. Like what's going on there? What is happening? But again, I think that's because we have read modern questions and modern understanding of the world into the text. The writer of Genesis is not ultra-concerned with chronology or a timeline. He's concerned with telling us something about God and now telling us something about another character in the story. There's a theological purpose to this text more than there is a 
modern science purpose to this text. And again, we have to remember that this conversation is happening not with modern science or modern cosmology, but with ancient cosmology and ancient thinking and ancient religion. And what does ancient religion say about humans? Well, again, so if you're uh, ancient Hebrew and you're having coffee with your Babylonian neighbor, um, you're like, hey, dude, how was... How were humans created, and why were they created? Well, your Babylonian counterpart would say, um, well, humans were created um, to be slaves to God, or to the gods. How were they created? Well, one day, the um, ancient pantheon of gods were discussing how they were tired of laboring, and they wanted servants to labor for them. And they looked out on their vast sea of possible potential gods that they could use to form into humans, and they saw the god Kingu, who nobody liked, so they murder Kingu, and from his remains, form humans from a bit divine, and they mix it with the dust of the earth, and then they have humans. And if you're an ancient Hebrew, what do you say? You're like, oh, that's weird. Uh, but not totally distinct from what we believe. We actually do believe that we are a tad bit divine and a little bit of the dust of the earth, that we are, God has breathed into us his spirit and formed us with the dust. But as opposed to it being violence, anarchy, chaos, competition, or slavery, what's happening? No, no, no. A, a good God who is a loving artist has diligently and carefully formed people into not slaves, but image bearers. Not servants, not, not slaves who are there to do the work of the gods or many gods or just God, but image bearers. And he has created us through grace and artistry. And that means, what does it mean to be an image bearer? Because that's kind of the key to this issue. And what's interesting is the word that's used is um, Salem, which is used in the rest of Scripture, actually, to describe um, statues, but more often than not to describe idols. So a false god will have an idol or an image of itself in a temple. So like the Marduk, the Babylonian god, will have Salem's idols of himself, images of himself all throughout the Babylonian kingdom, right? You see them being read about all throughout scripture that Israel is always turning to Salem's false gods and their idols or their images. Well, what's the point of an idol or an image? Physically represents what is distant and transcendent, right? Like this is like, here is this statue, which is a physical representation that kind of comes with a bit of authority because like it represents that God. And so it like is embowed with a little bit of authority that we know that when we're around it, we should respect it. We should trust it. It reminds us that there is a God or something like that. Um, and it has a, a bit of what we believe to be the likeness of Marduk, right? It's going to look kind of like him or it's going to look kind of like that person. Or, or I mean, like if, um, you were to build a statue of yourself. It would be like that too. Like It would have a little bit of likeness to you, but not fully. And it would represent you, but not fully. So false gods have these idols all over the world that are like them, but they're still they're, um, silent. They don't do anything. And God says, no, instead of that, I will make you, living beings, my images, my representatives. So you're not slaves you're not servants, you're not built with violence or chaos. No, no, no. You are representatives, images with authority and likeness to the God of the universe, meant to be like him, to act like him in his home. Right, so God makes humans to be his representatives with a bit of authority in his world. We're a bit like him and called to be like him. And how do we do that? 
Well, verse 28 gave us the key. By having a blast. <laughs> right? By having a blast. He says, like, go and take the earth and fill it and subdue it and multiply and, and, and rule over the universe. You could... Um, Sometimes this, this, this moment gets referred to in theology as the culture mandate. It's the God has given you this world full of potential and you are called to make something of it. Right? If you're called to be like God, what do you see God doing just moments before this? Oh, creating things. Cultivating things. Taking what is inhospitable and making it hospitable. He says, hey, be like me. Be my image bearer in the world. So what does that mean? Take things that are inhospitable and make them hospitable. Cultivate. Create he says, here's this world that is primed for life. Have a blast. Have a blast. You have been given ability and responsibility as image bearers. I think that's maybe the easiest way for me to think about it. Um, you have a calling. You're commissioned to create and to cultivate. To have families, make music, create art, harness the potential of creation from sharp sticks to Star Trek and everything in between. But I really believe that's actually what's being called for here. Um, and to do that, I think this is, you could summarize image bearing by saying this, that you are a representative of God who has been created with both ability and responsibility. Ability is power. right? At its key, ability is power. It's the power to know God, to know others, to know the world. It's the power to make something of the world that you see. Now, all of us at some level have ability. And sin, which we'll talk about in a second, all of those things have changed the way uh, and the dynamics of power and ability. Um, some people have less of it. That's an effect of sin. Some people are removed from them. That's an effect of sin. Some people are exploited and taken or, or maximized. Those are also effects of sin. But similar, we have to say all of us have ability to make something of the world. But image bearing is about how you wield your ability. You have a responsibility. Using that ability the way we see God doing it. To bring life and light and flourishing to make things for the glory of God and the good of others. Ability and responsibility. Um, which is another story key. Um, so we've just met God, who is this great, powerful creator, who uses his great, empower, his great power for good things, for bringing life and light. Then we have another story key, which are humans are the loving workmanship of God, created as image bearers with ability and responsibility to create and cultivate the world he has given them. So we know who God is, who we are, and why we're here. It's a pretty good story so far. All right, it's a pretty good story. But there's one big piece, and I think this is actually my favorite. Well, I don't know if I should say that. Everything's my favorite. Um, but there's one really big piece that I think we miss a lot, and it's this. Genesis 2, starting at the beginning, he says, um, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. And I think this is the seventh day of creation. I think one thing that we tend to do here is um, we look at the seventh day of creation, and we're like, oh, sweet, God is napping. That's cool. <laughs> like he's, I mean, he's pulled his weight, like, way hard. Uh, and so now he needs to take a little bit of a rest. But that misses, I think, really the key to what is happening in Genesis chapter 7. We always see Genesis 6 being the climax of creation, like the creation of humans. And then Genesis 7 is this kind of like really anticlimactic moment where it's like, and then God napped because he was sleepy. <laughs> but I think actually day 7 should be seen as the climax of God's creation work. Because God is not necessarily resting from his work. I would say that God is resting in his work. 
So less resting from, less taking a nap, and less moving in. Right? Because God is just in what? Oh, he's just built himself a dope house. And now God is going to move into his crib. He's going to live in his home. The earth will be his home, and he'll live here with his people, which is why in Genesis you see that God is walking in the coolness of the garden with Adam, because this is his house, and, pe- and humans are his people, and we live here in relationship to one another. See, if you were an ancient Israelite, again, the seven days of creation would have had massive cultural significance. They would have not have been necessarily, this is how many days of creation it required. Instead, what they would be thinking about <laughs> is um, that seven days is familiar Because seven days are the customary amount of time by which you celebrate an inauguration for a temple. So we actually jump to the story of Solomon building the temple in 1 Kings. He builds it. It's finished being built. That's important. And then for seven days, they celebrate. And what happens on the seventh day? God's presence comes to dwell in the temple. Oh, weird. Where else do we see that same narrative? Oh, Genesis chapter 1. Where do you think Solomon got it from? Oh, Genesis chapter 1. When they celebrated, declared the functions of the universe, like God is like, this is light, this is the universe, this is the sky, this is rain. Everybody's like, wow, this is so cool. And then he's like, guess what? Now I'm here. And everybody's like, wow, this is dope. Right? Like they're celebrating for seven days. On the seventh day, God moves in to his temple. He rests in it. On the seventh day, God is moving into his home. See, I think, so here's the thing. I think we picture the universe, and this is super important for everything else in this class. I think we picture the universe when we think about who God is, we think about who we are. I think we picture the universe like this. We're like, um, hmm? Oh, I'll get back to it in a second. We picture, um, like, here's earth. So, like, here's a tree. And this is earth. And then here, like, way up here, this is um, heaven. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a castle. Um, this, is a, this is the kingdom of God. It looks way more like a jail cell or something. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't look like anything, let's be honest. Okay, so this is, this is heaven. And then this is earth. And then actually there's probably, we should do this. Um, this is hell. Um, and so this is kind of like our, our normal conception of the universe. We're like, This is how the world works. So we're here, God is here, the devil is here, and my story, the the hope of my life is that I will someday be rescued from here and taken to here. Right? And that must have been the way that it was originally created to be. This is how things have always been. But what Genesis 7 says, no, no, no. The world is good, and God has rested in his creation. So there's no... um, This is a whiteboard, too. There's no... Two places, there's just one unified spot. So you have, this is heaven, and this is earth. There's just one unified home. There's not two dimensions of existence. There's not two different places. There's one. God and humans dwell together in one (laughs) domain of existence. Um, Are you saying now or before the fall? Before the fall. This is Genesis 1. No, how we are. Yeah, that's what I would say. Have we seen it created yet? In Genesis 1 and 2, 
we haven't read the whole thing right now. I'm just assuming that you maybe have perused it on your own. Um, has it been created? No. It's not there yet. Now, I'm not saying it's not a thing. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Um, but I don't think we can read it into the narrative of the story yet. Can we read into the narrative of the story that God made, like, all of this we're seeing right here, like, perfect? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think every day of creation, God says it is good. Um, and I think that that is a declaration of both that it fulfills its function, but that it is good. Like, it's right. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good spot, which I think is why it's, and it's unified that way because God lives there and God, God's presence is good. He's the one who emanates goodness and renewal. And so his presence dwells in his home with his people. And so, yeah, it's, it's good. It's way good. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Now, while my broken computer restarts, um, that's okay. Um, yeah, so thank you for um, pointing out no hell. So what else is not in this picture yet? Sin. Shame. Um, injustice. Evil. Suffering. None of those things are there yet. Now, they'll be there, we'll get there, but they're not there yet. And that's vital to the beginning of the story. So, because what do we have now? We have, one, God is a good God, who's a good creator, who uses his power for good things, right? He, he, he uses his power to wield into being life, light, and flourishing. And then we have, two, that humans are not slaves, they're image bearers, representatives of God. And, second of all, like... <coughs> This is, you could call this God's temple, and humans live there as his representatives. What's another phrase for representatives of God in a temple? Priests, right? Which, which scripture will call us over and over and over again. We are priests of God. Um, Peter 1.8 will say that you are a holy priesthood. Uh, so that's the first act of the story, um, creation. And it sets up everything that we know now about the rest. I hope